Welcome to the Health Excel podcast with me, Chandana. And Martin. Today on episode six of the podcast, we have with us John Brownstein, who is the Chief Innovation Officer of Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, John. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Yeah. I think we've been trying to get you at one of these for a long time. So it's finally good to be here in your hometown. Uh, I don't know if it's your hometown, but it's... uh, your town now. Uh, been my hometown for a while. <laughs> I'm Canadian, so, you know. Right. Uh, so maybe we'll go right to that. Like, what we we love to start with is try to understand, you know, yeah. what, what, what your childhood was like, where you grew up, and what kind of, what was the trajectory that led you to where you are today? Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to be here. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm Canadian, grew up in Montreal, was sort of on a more traditional path to an MD, but had a whole sort of diverse set of interests in areas of statistics and geography, computer science, and started getting into trying to figure out how to bring these sort of fields together. Like every parent's favorite kid. Except I didn't go to medical school. So, <laughs> right. Um, you chose your own path. Right. So I spent, um, actually I spent a semester when I was at McGill in Kenya and Uganda mm-hmm. and got very interested in emerging infectious disease and the intersection between climate and health and sort of landscape change and sort of recognized that there was this opportunity in a field called epidemiology. It's not right. one they talk about a lot in uh, early in, in school that sort of could help bring together sort of the idea of data healthcare yeah. science into one field. And so I decided to go and do, did a PhD mm-hmm. at Yale University in the Department of, of Epidemiology, where I could sort of merge sort of my interest in geography and health and, yeah. and um, a- epidemiology and public health. Did work in Lyme disease and West okay. Nile virus and did a lot of work in field collection. I actually got Lyme disease when collecting ticks in the field. Um, you got it. I got Lyme disease. I was, I was dragging for ticks in the fields. That's pretty uh, nasty stuff, right? N- the Northeast, yes. It wasn't fun. Went to the <laughs> hospital, got treated, went back in the field to keep finishing my PhD work. So uh, realized that maybe that wasn't the best use of my time, you know, collecting ticks, um, <laughs> growing mosquitoes in, in labs. And so ultimately it was like, you know what, there's a better way to, to get the data for the work that I want to do. We've jumped straight to that, right? Yeah. So that, this is your PhD. Yeah. So, so take a step back. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what led you on that trajectory. Right. I mean, this was this idea that I could start to bring all these uh, these combined fields together. Really interested in the idea that disease is heavily driven by you know a variety of, of factors climate and obviously climate change, the changes in, in sort of how we live and 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 the, the change in, in our inter, in our intersection with the environment. I was very interested in, in, in emerging zoonotic diseases. So this idea that there's yeah. these natural reservoirs of disease in animal populations and vectors like ticks and mosquitoes. And so this sort of sort of intersection between all like Was environment. Was that and common in Montreal? I don't really <laughs> see it as a hub for infectious disease, right? Right. It's not the hub for infectious <laughs> disease. Um, you know, maybe I, I read the hot zone uh, like many people did. Um, you wanted to go somewhere warm. Yeah, yeah. I love the movie Outbreak. Um, yeah. Actually, I got to I got to have a cameo in the movie Contagion, which was a, was oh, like really? a, a career highlight for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was... It was loving. I guess I lived in an extreme condition, which is cold. So mm-hmm. I was interested in extreme cold or extreme heat. So tropics, Arctic, it was all sort of sort of living in sort of you know in one direction or the other. 
Um, and there's, yes, not a lot of infectious disease in the high Arctic. So I um, went to the tropics. But I, I, I think it's lucky, right? Because I've grown up being exposed to a lot of infectious yeah. diseases. And it's kind of flipping back on me now because I have to take all these health checks for yeah. every visa that I apply right. for <laughs> uh, when I'm going somewhere. So exactly. it's a good thing. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And so, you know, you don't realize growing up in this environment, the impact, the yes. daily impact and threat of infectious disease. And so spending time in East Africa, realizing that like the, you know, the risk of malaria and dengue and all these, these important diseases, we just don't really talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, we started talking more when things like West Nile or then, you know, Zika and these things tend to sort of show up a little bit within the U.S., but they're not things that people think about. So anyways, then that was really what was driving me to, to, to do, to build ways to understand how the world is, impacted by disease what are the drivers and mm-hmm. my whole phd work was on sort of the impact of climate change right um on the emergence of disease in populations and how did that yeah. then translate to yeah. you coming into this role yeah. at uh, boston well, children so there's still like lots some, of things in between well there's things in between then i ended up coming to boston with this idea that i could start to tap into bigger data sets for understanding um population health and came to boston children's and harvard where we started, my, we were the, some of the first people mining the electronic medical record for insights okay. and quickly showed that you could take this sort of data that wasn't used for research, but build sort of important models. And now it's a whole field of, you know, many mm-hmm. people working on this idea of electronic medical record and claims data uh, mining. That wasn't something... When, you know, did, when did you start? That, that was about 20 years ago. 20? Uh, uh, well, okay, sorry, 15, yeah, wow. 15 years, 15 to 20. Well, my PhD was 20, yeah, 15 years ago. So that was that was a very early. Early, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so yeah, I came here actually about 15, 16 years ago, and that's where we were starting to do that kind of work. And yeah, so that, that was it, it really sort of the beginning of showing like, hey, there's all sorts of large data sets out there that right. you could tap into. And in fact, we extended that to a whole field of digital epidemiology, mining, the web, search query data, social media, all this, all this sort of digital exhaust, we say, right. uh, to understand the world of healthcare. And that sort of led to a whole new field and actually a company that I spun off. Wow. And is, is that what brought you to Boston? So exactly. you, look, you looked around the world and said, where is this data yeah. that I can put together to give a holistic view of some of these Exactly. Boston is really a, a hub for informatics, bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. There's some really amazing people that are um, pushing the boundaries of thinking about data, but also new data standards. Um, you're probably hearing a lot in the in the federal government, a lot of discussion about um, new data standards like FHIR yes. um, and applications like Smart on FHIR. That all yeah. came out of Boston mm-hmm. Children's, out of the informatics program. And so a lot of these big sort of ideas have originated out of here. And so that was a great place to begin my like right. academic career and actually become a professor at Harvard. I, I want to zone in on, on that a little yeah. bit, you know. So I, I can remember the first time I went to Hims. It's you know I don't know maybe twenty years ago, eighteen years ago, and I remember walking around this you know huge conference yeah. and just thinking to myself, how many medic, you know electronic health record yeah. vendors do we need, right? Yeah. And so you end up with this just overpowering number. And yes, we 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 can't share data, right? You know. So you talk about fire. What do you think are the barriers yeah. to to really getting interoperability? Because yeah. we've been talking about it for so long. Yeah, it's a real challenge, and it's something. You know, despite us being sort of some of the originators of these ideas, even in our own, own environment, it's really challenging. And that's actually a barrier to a lot of the startups that we're trying to work with today out of our accelerator at the hospital. There needs to be some real investment in that sort of middleware layer. That sort of that. Uh, 
interfaces between the EMR, which is you know data storage at the end of the day, and all these new exciting ways to interface with the physician that are improving the way that we look at data, that build in predictive analytics, that use sort of new interfaces, reduce burnout. And that middleware, which is not as exciting as maybe some of the startups, um, there are a few startups that are working on that and really pushing the boundaries of thinking about, okay, if you create that layer and make it easier for these new applications to to sort of dock in, all of a sudden now you have a much sort of richer ecosystem and much more flexibility on the part of a health system to take things in. And because right now, you know, you do these one-off integrations, it's a huge amount of burden. I think sometimes startups don't fully recognize how intense the amount of work is to do this. And Mm -hmm. so if we can reduce that work, then it makes it much simpler for the whole ecosystem to rise up. And John, do you you see it mainly as a technology challenge? It's, I mean, there's there's a number of parts on it, right? I mean, I think there's definitely a tech challenge because you're trying to do all this mapping of of unique fields in an EMR to a common set. And that takes definitely some horsepower to get mm-hmm. that done. But there's also, of course, issues around the underlying EMRs that right. have certain policies about how you're supposed to access and mm-hmm. what the, the, what's allowable and what's not, who owns the data. Right. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of health systems struggle with that. I, I do think there is a move across the EMRs to be more open and to create app ecosystems. But it's still a slow process, and so it's not happening probably at the speed that we would have hoped. And the reason I went down that track was my perception is within the research community, you were saying that you know what attracted you to Boston was yeah. these data sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. So in the research community, there seems to be much more openness yeah. to that, whereas when you move into the care delivery side then it becomes much tougher. I don't know if that's yeah. kind of consistent with what it's, you think. It's mixed. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm mean, i coming from the Harvard ecosystem, which where the, it's pretty cutthroat, I right, think, yeah. in some ways. So I don't know <laughs> yeah, how so, as good as that. He's right? like, it really wasn't that easy. Yeah, it wasn't that. I don't know how easy it was yeah. to survive. But, um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, there's definitely different incentives. You know, in the research community, it's about writing grants and publishing papers. Right. Obviously, from the clinical side, there's there's a, another set uh, of sort of incentives and barriers as well. Um, so it's just different. And so I'm, okay. I'm lucky enough to exist on sort of both sides of that with my my role that I've had now at the hospital, which is the chief innovation officer role. Yeah. And within that role, right, so I've seen Boston Children's pioneer lots of initiatives, and obviously that speaks highly of your leadership as well. But how do you kind of approach it? How do you know, okay, here's a problem, here's how I'm going to approach it, and here's how I'm going to nurture the people and the solutions that could solve the problem? Yeah, it's it, it happens from a couple different directions. Um, one is that we sort of go from this sort of bottom-up approach, right? Like, so we have clinicians and researchers that have identified pain points, right. and we identify the ones that we think ha- will take the you know, will have the biggest impact, but also have sort of scalability. Because if they just pilot within our organization, they'll likely never get sustained and probably sort of, you know, we have this issue of pilots dying on the vine. So we we have a whole process for evaluating, sprinting on ideas. We have an external advisory board. And so we really think very clearly about the things that we invest in, whether it's an internal project or an outside startup. And we work with some amazing outside startups, but we've gone through a pretty intense vetting process Mm -hmm. on a variety of different sort of dimensions, including sort of, does it extend the mission of the hospital? Then the other side is more sort of enterprise level. Like as a hospital, we've committed to saying, okay, the the future sort of patient journey is going to be 
incredibly digital in the future. And so what are the elements that we can start to do now that will make sure that that patient experience and the clinical practice experience is really optimized with technology? Right. So that's like implementation of, you know, virtual care and remote patient monitoring, improved decision support and electronic medical record. You know, so, I mean, there's a range of things as an institution where like, these are must-dos now. Yeah. And then, of course, there's, there's sort of like, let's say 10 years from now, what are, what's the future practice of medicine? What do we need to do to prepare for, for those yeah. changes? And so we have sort of a whole R&D component to our group as well. So I was speaking to a couple of different startups over the last few days, and um, one of the common themes I heard, and I think it'll be re- really useful for uh, everybody listening to know See, when they come and approach someone like Boston Children's, they think, oh, I'm going to get this huge enterprise-wide contract and I'm just going to roll out the solution. But really, they're starting with one champion, one clinical champion, starting in one department. And then how do you take it from there and maybe expand or help them expand in other centers? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Part of the issue is that... um, you know, a hospital is a collection of a number of different service lines. And so just by implementing in one of those service lines doesn't mean that you've now expanded broadly or doesn't mean you have the right to expand broadly. Now, we're trying to be, as a hospital, much more easy to work with in that sense Mm -hmm. because we don't want to have this sort of patchwork of startups across different service lines. So that's not not good for us either. Um, So we're trying to be very clear about the startups that have broad applicability from the start. That does mean that we have maybe a, a more intense vetting process, but it's better... I mean, everyone's better off if yeah. we have now selected a startup that has that full sort of scalability across the institution. How can, you know, a, a startup that can meet sort of 90% of the sort of use cases rather than, you know, a very small sliver of the patient population? Because yeah. that that's going to be hard to sustain. That service line doesn't necessarily always have the same budget. Um, and our IT capability can't support all of those different of companies. Now, we have a broad set of companies we're working with, but they all have to have some sort of generalizability across. But yes, from a starting point, startup can't sort of come in day one and be deployed of enterprise-wide. It just, it just, it's, I wish that could be the case, but it, you, it just doesn't work that yeah, way. Yeah, well, besides you want to test them and right, make sure that their claims are all true, right? Uh, absolutely. And on that note, picking on one of your yeah. um, initiatives that I know yeah. uh, you've done a big job with is voice technology, mm-hmm. right? And everybody's talking about it now. Last week we saw Alexa is now HIPAA compliant, which is huge. And I actually didn't anticipate this coming so soon, but you probably did. You've been working with them for a long time. So yeah, so we were part of that announcement. We're one of five organizations that sort of were in this invite only HIPAA pilot, um, which is super exciting. Yeah, We've been actually working on Alexa and voice technologies from since 2016. So since when these things started to hit the market, Uh we had this recognition that, um, if the consumer's interaction with technology is changing, right, so that you have this now connected listening device in the home that is this hub of information, it should also be your hub of medical information. Right. And so we started building skills on yeah. the Alexa platform. Uh, we built the first healthcare skill actually called KidsMD, which was all about acute conditions and pediatrics. But that was really just a sort of a stepping stone for us to start to think about broader applications in sort of how we extend care at the hospital more yeah. broadly, right? Because if everyone is thinking about how to improve your touch points with patients, and it's not just about the one-off interactions you have in a healthcare right. setting, it's about the continuous interactions because ultimately that's better patient experience, but that's also for better outcomes. Yeah, That's what we started 
started aligning with Amazon around, and we launched um, a skill as part of this announcement, which was all about uh, post-discharge. So how do you improve connectivity with your care team? How do you get really insight about when your next appointments are, but also how do you start doing remote patient monitoring via Alexa? Appetite, pain, uh, activity levels, and start to use this as a very easy tool to do that kind of logging. So while I know it sounds great, but lots of people have concerns about the data, security, privacy, and then I guess uh, I'd love to know what happens once the patient has answered these questions and you've monitored the patient remotely, so you have all of this data then, how are you... uh, making actionable insights yeah. out of that. Right. So, I mean, from a privacy security standpoint, obviously this had to go through some serious deep dive with our compliance teams and privacy teams at the hospital. I mean, nobody took this kind of concept lightly of at course. all. And we went through a whole process. Um, luckily, I mean, Amazon has been in the space of HIPAA for many years, right? We we in many organizations use their AWS yes. web service already today. So they have a long history of knowing how to deal with this kind of data, protecting it, storing it. So the, it actually was a pretty seamless sort of discussion about what we need to do to, to, um, to be HIPAA compliant and, mm-hmm. and to work with Amazon. We do certain things like patients have a voice pin in order to connect to the skill. They do account linking. So there's some steps that are required right. um, in order to start using Alexa as part of the sort of the care plan. The, the, what we launched was actually an existing recovery program. So the data in itself already is being used as part of a of a whole recovery program post-cardiac surgery. Okay. So this is not um, a new sort of program. Mm-hmm. It's an existing program that is sort of enhanced via voice. Mm-hmm. So they take these types of data points about the recovery period yeah. to understand how to change course of treatment, right. whether a follow-up appointment is needed. There's the whole number of steps that are used mm-hmm. based on that data, but it's not like this is de novo. This is already part right. of an existing right. where we would actually use mobile text messaging and other exactly. tools. And so but now, now we're using it and in voice. voice. And you know, if you think about busy parent having a voice tool as you're 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 sort of dealing with your kids, this is trying to create a lower barrier to engagement. Mm-hmm. And in our view, it's it's you know we're excited about whatever modality makes sense and is best serve the patient. So if right. voice is now a big part of how people interact with technology, then we want to be there right with them. For Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, go ahead. I, I like the way you described it in terms of if that's where the, the you know the population is going to be, you want to be there yeah. and the experience. And I guess part of that is because I suppose kids are, are almost digital natives, right? right? I mean, so they've grown. It's not like you're convincing people of my generation <laughs> to use technology. So... Beyond that, though, how how do you guys, you have limited resources, yeah. how do you guys think about how much to spend on those projects versus the other stuff you want to do? No, it's, it's a great question, and it's always a sort of long list of, of opportunities, right? right? Like anything we take on, there's a, it's a costing of another, of another thing. So we, I mean, we have a broad set of activities. We allocate some portion of our time to some R&D efforts, whether it's in voice yeah. or in working in virtual reality or whatever it is, because we recognize we have to have some, you know, so if say like 20% time, like that's what we have to do, okay. and, and we reserve that amount of time. But the bulk of our activities are all about sort of key sort of um, operational aspects of the hospital. Like we need a patient portal that works 
right for our patients. We need to provide connectivity for our our staff with mobile phones. You know, the basic sort of table stakes kind of things. I would say the bulk of what we do is really focused on sort of what needs to happen today. And but we we always are sort of reserving some amount of time for that future. So a big part of some of our enterprise initiatives right now also in voice, which is all around uh, physician burnout. You know, Mm -hmm. we have a huge amount of struggle right now on documentation. Of course. Um, and so we're, we have a constant eye to the new technologies that are emerging yeah. to reduce the documentation need that capture conversations in natural yeah. ways and, 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 and push this kind of sort of structured, now structured data into the electronic medical record. So there, I mean, we're driven a lot by sort of the key uh, areas. So whether it's like, okay, table stakes or here are the big pain points our, our organization is experiencing, that's how we start to allocate. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think is next for voice technology? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's lots of opportunities to begin to extend the use cases. Actually, um, we put on a voice conference in the fall, and there are huge amounts of uh, of activity mm-hmm. that are going on in the space. So whether it's in the patient home, in, in the clinical suites, in if whether it's in the patient experience side or it's in the physician side, there. What I'm most probably excited about is the opportunity around biomarkers. So getting back a little bit to my research days, where we're doing a lot of data data mining and extracting right. insights from data, this whole new opportunity in voice where we're the capturing biomarkers. the biomarkers around rate and rhythm and pitch, the amount of context you can get from the sound, not just by the words people use, has a whole range of opportunities in early identification of disease. And Absolutely. I think that is where I'm super excited because if you can cut down the time for identification treatment that you know you can have huge impact absolutely how mature are those biomarkers there are actually so incredible number of research studies have been published whether it's in cardiovascular disease neurodegenerative disorders Mm -hmm. i mean lots of great foundational work has already been published Mm -hmm. now the problem is that you think about the scale needed to really test these things out it's still it's still uh, um still starting off but as these companies whether it's amazons or googles of the world have incredible data sets that represents a huge opportunity to begin testing these things out at, at massive scales. And I think we're going to find some incredibly new insights too that we ha- hadn't recognized before. And is that applicable to pediatric populations as well as... Absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's all sorts of opportunities, especially, I mean, pediatrics is a, a unique area, but um, if you're thinking especially about opportunities to identify things like mental health issues okay. or... ADHD, other things that actually right. have some, uh, there are a vocal component to them, um, early uh, literacy issues. I mean, there's really some some opportunities on that front as well that we're starting to explore. And it's great. I think we have now finally, we have voice recordings in the past. You're not sitting in your doctor's office recording your uh, <laughs> interactions back in the day. So I think we have that data set, like you said now, and Absolutely. that creates an opportunity for the future of these kids even. You can predict what they might have. I mean, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but I have some friends in a company <laughs> who are collecting yeah. vocal biomarkers yeah. and they've done some interesting studies with MIT. And yeah. um, this was on a retrospective population um, estimating exactly, like you said, who was at a higher chance of developing dementia yeah. based on their uh, voice. So, yeah, definitely fascinating stuff. I'd like to change the conversation a little <laughs> yeah. bit. I think it's fascinating. We could spend hours on it. But one of the things I've been so impressed with, uh, John, is the size of the innovation group you've built. Yeah. Um, you know, we get asked a lot by health systems, you know, trying they're trying to set up their innovation yeah. facilities. And, and, you know, you've set it up at scale and you have 
you know, spin outs and you have projects. Just talk us through a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. Um, I was definitely not the first person in the role. Um, it existed for about four, I think, years before me, four or five. Naomi uh, was... Yeah, Naomi Freed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that was sort of an um, important stepping stone because that began to force the, uh, the organization to think about the culture of innovation, the openness, and, mm. and the, the sort of reducing the threat that bringing ideas uh, to change sort of the way we practice was, was accepted and, and would be embraced. Part of the challenge at that point, and I had just been involved in spinning off a company um, and exiting from that, I realized that the institution was probably spending a lot of time investing in small pilots, but if we didn't find the ways to commercialize some of these things and get them out of the hospital and, and scaled, they would quickly start to, to, to whittle because they just didn't have the, the support. A, a customized environment that, you know, that just doesn't have sort of legs to go outside of the environment. It just it just doesn't last. Um, and so when I came in, we started creating this accelerator model, which was really about okay, we're not going to do as many projects, but we're going to pick the best ones, and we're going to put real resources to work, real software development, a real team around it, and real vetting from the outside world with um, you know VCs and, and digital health luminaries, and they're going to help us decide. We were able to quickly get things out um, to the world, and we spun off a bunch of different companies and still helping some of those along. Once we had done that, it was very clear that lots of other startups could use the, the sort of resources we, we've been building up, right? Okay. So we have a deep bench of software engineers, project managers, um, you know, people that could analyze the financial side as well as the tech side. Um, and so we've been able to create this sort of flow of startups that have wanted to, to dock in because we have content or software capabilities. And it's really a testament to the, the institution itself because they recognize that there was an opportunity to start a double down in digital. And the group has sort of been in charge with really trying to not only you know build startups or push startups, but think about um, digital at the enterprise level. And that brought a set of capabilities. And you know, big part of what we did was just create like a roadmap of how to get things done with the organization. Um, you know, we hit up against a bunch of different groups when we're trying to do things. Mm -hmm. IT, obviously security side, um, our tech transfer office. Right, right. Um, marketing. I mean, there's there's a long list, legal, I mean, there's a long list. How do you get them on side? So we, we, it's, we spend a lot of time and, and it's all about transparency and and bringing people to the table and, you know, making people feel the urgency of getting things done, but, you know, trying to document as much as possible mm. and, and create a, a process that everyone feels, you know, you know, th that they're part of, of that, that decision, even though maybe we're the ones driving it along. And through that, we've really, uh, I think, been able to create, a, you know, a pretty collaborative environment where people are excited about what we're doing, um, mm -hmm. but have a seat at the table. It's hard to do because, you know, you're on the front lines of delivering care, right? And, you know, one of the things I always see in, in you meet amazing people yeah. who, who just don't have time, right. you know, so they're treating yeah. patients yeah. and then, you know, yeah. they, they're really innovative. They want to work on these things. But how can you organizationally give them some headspace and some time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. I mean... I mean, obviously, we've had incredible from, from support from the CEO and CEO, who, so that top-down has been right. critical. Um, 
but then we have actually an incredibly receptive legal department that comes from some of the startup community, so okay. they get what needs to happen. So they're right. not completely risk averse. Uh, that they know um, what you know. Obviously, they know what's allowable, what not. But they can really help us think this through. And I give credit to the other. So I'm the chief innovation officer. There's the chief information officer, CI, the real CIO, as he when we always, <laughs> we always joke. Um, but um, we always talk. We we give a talk called CIO has gone wild, and like we you know <laughs> we 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 have a natural tension. We're friends, but we all also have this certain, you know, back and forth about, yeah. you know, his job is to sort of really make sure that everything we do has the patient in mind. And as, you know, the top, you know security, it's more than just the, you know, return on investment or anything like that. And so we have hard conversations, but I think ultimately, you know, he also accepts the fact that there's a huge change happening in the world and we have to be right there. And so it's, it's, um, it's actually a useful tension yeah. um, that ultimately is for the best of the hospital. Right. And how do you divide the roles? Is your role primarily looking outwards and his is yeah. more inward focused? Yeah, there, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. but yes, I mean, definitely they're in charge of the full suite of technology that's supporting operations. Right. We're bringing in a lot of technology. We're building some um, that eventually has to, to move over to their operations. And I that's see. why we have to be very clear about what we're doing from the from the beginning. Otherwise... That handoff doesn't doesn't work. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. This is fascinating. We could talk for hours. I, I think, think we're so. going we're going to run out of time <laughs> exactly. quite soon, right? So. so it is time for our favorite question. Okay. Uh-oh. Which is. <laughs> <laughs> Have we warned you? No, I don't think. Yeah. So. Oh, you uh, I think you're going to struggle with this one. So if you were not going to be a CIO of Boston Children's, what would you be doing today? Oh my gosh, um, that's a great question. So. Uh, I would love, I mean, I was always a huge fan of film. I would have loved to have been a director, uh, you know, if I, like to- if you try uh, completely outside of yeah. healthcare. Yeah, yeah, you yeah could, and I would love. Or like insect know. movies, right? No, like, I, like- I, you know, I like <laughs> dark, um, somewhat comedic films, like a Wes Anderson, like that. You know, I would have loved to have done that kind of thing. But like you, you want to act in them or you wanted to Oh, direct just direct, them? direct. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. I would have done that, but I'm very happy in the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes infectious disease does get into uh, the, the film side have been able to help contagion ad, for like, helped on contagion <laughs> in an episode of Grey's Anatomy once it happens it happens <laughs> that's great well it's been a pleasure having you thank you so much yeah. great thanks for coming down John wonderful to be here thank you 